so much for leading us in worship, Rishi. Love to worship. I, um, I'm not much of a singer, but I just love to lose myself in the worship. And I really do believe that when we do that, when we lift our hands and when we're just focusing on how much we love our Lord, I, I really believe that body, soul and spirit just come into unity in those moments. And that's when God can really work on us. And I, I really believe that healing takes place as we worship him. That's when we're set free of those things that Satan sends into our lives to try to rob us of the fullness of our salvation. So thank you so much for leading us, Jerusha. I really, really do appreciate that. And um, it's funny, you know, because we couldn't, I couldn't find the words of one of the songs. And without Ainsley and David here, what do I do? What do I do? Because they're the people who understand all the technical things. But anyway, eventually I figured it out. So I'm very, very proud of myself because I figured it out. And um, I don't know whether I'll be able to do it again next week, but you just never know. <laughs> so um, last week, as you might know, Jeanette and I were ministering at C3 Ballina for some very good friends of ours, pastors Jeff and Carolyn Frankham, whom we've known for pretty close to 25 years now. I, um, I did a, a big business seminar on, on Saturday and then we had individual consultations on Saturday afternoon and into the early evening. Then we went off for dinner. I figured out I talked non-stop for 10 hours. And Pastor Jeff said to me at the end of the night, are you tired? I said, no, but I reckon I'll sleep well, and I did. And then I preached uh, on Sunday morning in his church, and um, we invited people to come forward for prayer at the end of the service, and we were praying for nearly one and a half hours. What a needy church, eh? <laughs> But it was so good. We, we were able to pray with all the business folk in, uh, in the church. And uh, it was just a wonderful, wonderful weekend. So we're so glad that we were able to actually be away. And we're paying for it now because David and Ainsley said, well, we're going to go away for two weeks. So they're in Japan at the moment. Um, they flew out to Japan on, on Friday. Well, David was actually in Singapore for work. And um, he uh, joined them yesterday. And so they're spending a couple of days at Disneyland. Well, they go to Disney World and then Disney Sea. You, well, you know, everybody goes to Disney something in their life, don't they? So that's what they're doing at the moment. They'll be back in a couple of weeks' time. But today, as you might know, is Pentecost Sunday, 50 days after Easter. So we're going to focus on happy birthday today because it's actually the birthday of the Christian church. So uh, many people would argue that it was the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit was, was released upon the very earliest of Christians, that that was the birth of what we know today as the Christian church. Christianity, of course, is the biggest uh, religion on the face of the planet, and it will continue to be the largest, according to missiologists and uh, those people who look at all of the statistics. And uh, by the end of the century, about a third of the world's population will still be claiming Christ as their Lord and Saviour, unless, of course, Jesus comes a second time before the end of this, um, this century. So we've actually got a lot to be grateful for and a lot to look forward to. Well, of course, we don't know if it happened exactly 
like that. But uh, it must have been an amazing, amazing experience to actually be at Pentecost, that very first time that the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, was poured out on people, empowering them and enabling them to do those things that God had actually called them to do. So I mentioned earlier that Pentecost, of course, it actually means 50, and I was going to do a 50-point discussion point, but I thought that would keep us going for far too long, and most of you would probably not actually last through 50 points. So I divided it by 10 and came up with 5. How's that? That's probably enough, eh? (laughs) But um, the first point I want to make about Pentecost is that it was one of the major feasts in the Jewish calendar. There were three. There was the Passover, and the whole point of the Passover was to remember that time when the Jews were released finally from Egypt and remember that God sent a number of plagues upon Egypt and the last one was that the first son would die. And uh, that didn't happen for the Jews, of course, because God initiated the very first Passover and uh, the Passover actually meant that the plague passed over the houses of the Israelites and uh, they actually had to spray a little bit of blood with, with a hyssop branch on the, the, um, the lintel. I was nearly going to say lentil, but it's actually the lintel, <laughs> the, top of the, the top of the door. If you had to do it to all your lentils, it would take a long time, no doubt. So Passover was uh, a celebration in the springtime. Everybody came originally to the tabernacle and then to the temple, So all of the Jews used to come to the temple in Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover in the springtime. And its purpose was to remember. And remembrance is so important in our lives. It's really important for the Jews, for example, to remember those times when God intervened and rescued them. In this case, rescued them from over 400 years of slavery in Egypt. And over and over and over again, God reminds them of what he did. You see it in the Psalms. You see it in the books of the prophets. Jeanette and I were listening to a podcast just the other day, and uh, the point that was being made in that podcast was the importance of remembrance. Those of you who were here at Wednesday Connect last Wednesday night, we heard Bill Johnson talking about the importance of rehearsing our testimony, of sharing our testimony, because it raises our faith level to the point where miracles happen. And so it was with the whole of Israel. And God's desire was that they would remember. And so the Passover was a feast that he instituted by which they would remember what he did for them. Pentecost was another major feast and it was established 50 days after the Passover. Its purpose was originally to celebrate the first buds of the harvest. So you would see the the seed heads of grain begin to swell and that was a portent of what was to come in the harvest a little while later. And so God instituted this festival 
to remind the Jews that it was he who brought the rains in season. It was he who'd placed the sun in the sky to bring the warmth to the land under which the plants would flourish. And so as they, they witnessed the, the growth of their crops, they saw that increase on its way. And it was God who brought the increase. And then there was the Feast of Tabernacles, which came at the end of autumn when the harvest was complete. And its purpose was to bring the people together to celebrate the harvest. So God wanted to be right in the middle of everyday life of the Israelites. And of course, so too it is today. And that's why he promises us the indwelling of the Holy Spirit to empower us in our Christian lives. I think it's very interesting that we're talking about the Feast of Pentecost. We're talking about the buds on the plants, the beginning, if you like, of the increase of the land which would produce the harvest. If we have a quick look at Acts chapter 2, I won't read the whole, the whole chapter, but it starts by saying this, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. That's what we saw in the little video clip. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together, and were confused, because everyone heard them speak in his own language. Then they were all amazed and marvelled, saying, saying to one another, Look, are not all these who speak Galileans? And how is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya adjoining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. So they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, whatever could this mean? Others mocking said they are full of new wine. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, men of Judea, and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. And then he goes on to give his very first sermon. It was a powerful sermon. I won't read through it, but I encourage you to read it because he goes right back to the prophet Hosea and he assures the people these are not drunk. They haven't been drinking too much wine. They're not engaging in some kind of ecstatic behaviour. They're not under the influence of alcohol, but they've been filled with the Holy Spirit who has enabled them to speak the languages of all of the people who were present. And it goes on to say, on that day, about 3,000 people were saved. That is the first fruits of the Christian church. And that's why it is 
many people would argue that the Christian church was birthed at Pentecost. It's an amazing thing, isn't it? These disciples, these were the people who felt disenfranchised, disheartened, discouraged because Jesus was no longer with them. He had made them a promise. He had told them to tarry. Some of them did. There were about 120 in the upper room. There were 500 originally. So some got sick of waiting and they went off to do whatever they wanted to do. But then, suddenly, the Holy Spirit came and was manifest through wind and through fire and what looked like fire and through sound. And you know, I love going all the way back to the promise that God made to Abram. And you can read the details of the covenant that God made with Abram, whose name was later changed to Abraham. You can read the details of that covenant in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3, and in Genesis 15, verses 1 to 21. God promised Abraham, I will make you a great nation. Then at one point he took him outside and he said, you look up to the heavens, count the stars if you can, so shall be your descendants. And we are assured in the epistles that we are regarded by God as descendants of Abraham. Those of us who have given our lives to God through Jesus Christ can have the assurance that we are in that number. This is why I do not believe that any other religion is ever going to grow larger than Christianity because we will continue to see people saved. Those 3,000 who came to the Lord at the very first Pentecost, they were just the first fruits. Just the first fruits. And there's going to be a great feast of tabernacles in heaven at the end of human history because there will be the whole of the harvest over 2,000 plus years since Jesus walked on the earth. And you know what? We are part of that harvest. Count the stars if you can was God's challenge to Abraham. I'm going to give you as many descendants as there are stars in the heavens. And as far as I know, science has never been able to actually place a number on the stars in the heavens. We say there's an infinite number. The universe is so big. That's how many descendants Abraham will have. And we are in that number. So the second point of the five points is that Pentecost heralded in the New Testament harvest. The third point I want to make is that the Bible speaks about three separate baptisms. The first is referred to as baptism into Christ. Some translations of the Bible say the baptism into the body of Christ. And that's what happens when we first make that decision to become followers of Jesus Christ, to surrender ourselves to God as our Father through Jesus. We are at that point baptised into Christ. And that actually is when our spirit is regenerated. The spirit within us comes alive and we are actually then actually 
the Holy Spirit comes to live, as it were, inside us and to um, be the, the base or the, the energy of the spirit person that we are. So at that point, our, our spirit is regenerated. We become a new creation. Old things pass away. All the sin, all the experiences that belong to our past, they're gone as far as God is concerned and we make an absolutely fresh start. That's baptism into Christ and you can find the reference in 1 Corinthians 12 verse 13. But there are two other baptisms that the Bible speaks about. One is baptism in water and the other one is baptism in the Holy Spirit. The Greek word baptizo, which is used, usually translated uh, baptise in the, the New Testament, it actually literally means to be immersed, to be fully immersed in water. And that's why many evangelical and Pentecostal churches have a strong um, commitment to baptism in water. And uh, they'll bring a blow-up swimming pool or something like that into a facility like this, or they'll find someone with a swimming pool in their backyard. Some actually have what they call a baptismal font, which is a bit like a swimming pool built in to their facility. And when people believe they are ready, they'll come to their, their pastor and say, look, I really believe it's time that I was water baptised. Usually you go through a short series of lessons explaining what it's all about, and you go through that ritual. And what it actually means is, symbolically, publicly, you are saying, I proclaim that I am now dead with Christ, but I am risen to life again in him, so that all that is old is now gone. I remember, I might have told you this story, that Jeanette and I were actually baptised in Scotland. And it's interesting, we were at a birthday party yesterday up on the Sunshine Coast and um, some of our Scottish friends were there who um, we, we had met at around about the time that we were baptised ourselves. It was the middle of winter. I was pretty new to Pentecostal churches back in those days and I, I thought we would have had to have been baptised in the river. And um, I used to walk across this bridge over the River Allen and I'd look down and I'd think, Man, it's going to be cold when I get baptised. Oh, my goodness me. But I was so on fire for the Lord. I thought, it's okay. It's okay. You know, I'll get cold for Jesus. Anyway, it turned out, it turned out that that's not how they do it in Scotland in the middle of winter. They, they actually borrowed another church where they had a, a heated baptismal font. So you know, the water was warm and everything. But our, our daughter Ainsley, whom all of you know, she was only four years old at the time. She, might have been, she would have been five by then. Just started going to school and she was getting a little bit of a Scottish accent. And um, I can remember that the night that we were being baptised, Ainsley came home from school and she said, Dad, Dad, why are you being advertised? Why are you being advertised? And I thought, it's, that's what we're doing. We're actually advertising to the whole world. That we are his. We are his. That we were prepared to go under the water and make that statement publicly that we had chosen to become followers of Jesus Christ. And that was way back in February 
of 1990, so it's a few years ago now. But that's sometimes referred to as the second baptism, the baptism in water, which is referred to in Acts chapter 2, verses 38 to 41. And then there's a third baptism, which is baptism in the Holy Spirit. It's a baptism which is a fundamental belief of Pentecostal churches and Australian Christian churches, just like other Pentecostal churches, has a strong commitment to encouraging people to receive baptism in the Holy Spirit. And it's spoken about here in Acts chapter 2, that the, the people who were in that upper room, it was the, the original 11 uh, disciples, minus Judas, he was off the scene by then, plus the others who were in that room, they experienced an additional empowering of the Holy Spirit. So you don't have to be baptised in the Holy Spirit to have the Holy Spirit living in you. That happens at the point of salvation. It's the Holy Spirit living within you that brings about that regeneration or that new creation that we become at the point of salvation. But baptism in the Holy Spirit is about an empowering to carry out God's will for you to fulfil your destiny in Christ. And who knows, we need to be empowered to stay on the road, to keep the shoulder to the wheel, to keep the nose to the grindstone, or use any other metaphor you want to use. We can't really do it on our own. And so we believe in baptism in the Holy Spirit. We believe that God will give us a language that we've never known before. In, in the case here in the book of Acts, clearly God was empowering people to speak in the languages of those who were in the audience. And I, I've heard testimonies where people was, were just babbling in tongues and someone understood their language, yet the speaker had no idea what they were actually saying. And there are other instances in uh, 2 Corinthians in particular where there are tongues that are not necessarily other known languages. They are, in a sense, a, a secret language between you and God which is given to you by the Holy Spirit, enabling you to speak out Words that you can't understand, but words that connect your spirit to the very Holy Spirit and to God. And we'll, we'll, we'd like to talk about baptism in the Holy Spirit in Pentecostal churches because we see that as the empowerment, and I'll have a little bit more to say about that shortly. But yet there's quite a lot of controversy about Pentecost, and you can, you can read a whole range of theologians and you can listen to speakers. Not everybody actually believes that what happened at Pentecost is something which is pertinent to the modern day church. And look, I'm not a theologian. I tell people I'm just an economist who reads the Bible. And uh, I don't pretend to be a theologian. I don't have a degree in theology. But when I read through the book of Acts, what I see is the evidence of a church which is empowered by the Holy Spirit to do the work of God on earth. And what is the work of God on earth? The work of God on earth is to redeem all of creation 
and to bring heaven to earth. You know, we pray in the Lord's Prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now we've got a couple of choices, I reckon. We can sit and wait until Jesus comes a second time and we will see heaven come to earth. Or we can say, you know what? We want to see a progressive unfolding of this great plan of God for redemption of all of creation and we can make a commitment to work with him. My whole purpose for being in Ballina last week was to talk to people in business about where business fits in God's plan for bringing heaven to earth, in God's plan for redeeming all of creation. Who knows workplaces need redeeming? Who knows the financial sector needs redeeming? What, who knows business needs redeeming? Certainly does. So we can either just sit and wait, and that's okay, we'll still go to heaven. We can sit and wait until Jesus returns, or we can say, we're going to roll up our sleeves, and we're going to listen to the voice of God, and we're going to do everything we can to partner with Him to make this world a better place right now for at least those people around us. So I, I see the book of Acts as presenting a pattern. A lot of people say today that the, the modern institutional church has developed a, a long way away from the, the biblical pattern. That doesn't worry me. There's a lot of stuff that doesn't fully line up with the, the cultural context of the Bible because we've moved on. Remember, we're actually going from a garden back in Genesis to a city in the book of Revelation. So God never intended that things be static. He always intended that humankind be co-creators with him, developing that garden, filling the earth and taking it from the primitive garden that it was initially to a city. So we can be part of that. It doesn't concern me, for example, that in uh, Acts 2 verse 44, we're told that in the early church, people sold their possessions and their goods. They held everything in common so that nobody starved. They didn't sell their houses, by the way, because it tells you a couple of verses later on that they met in one another's homes. So they used to go to the synagogues for teaching. They'd go to the synagogue on Saturday for teaching and then they'd meet in each other's homes and that's where they'd have communion. Well, we don't do that today. We don't go to the local synagogue and then go into a home and have communion. We actually do it all here. And that, I think that's okay. That's okay. Acts sets a pattern. Acts sets a pattern in which the Holy Spirit empowers us and the Holy Spirit empowers us regardless of the institutional setting. So it doesn't matter that there are 38,000 denominations in the earth today. It doesn't matter that Ignite Life Church is here in Pimpermar, one of the smaller congregations today. You wait and see what God is going to do. There are other bigger congregations, but we're all engaged in exactly what the early church was engaged in, which is spreading 
the good news about the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The good news that we don't have to go to hell because of sin. And by the way, sin is simply not acknowledging who God is and that Jesus Christ is the only way to get to God. That's all sin is. There's all sorts of other activities that we can engage in that are sinful acts. But basically, sin is defying God, not acknowledging who he is. So is it for today? Yes, the whole of the book of Acts is for today. The frameworks are different. The church looks very different today to what it looked like way back then. But the pattern is established here in the book of Acts. And we are commanded, of course, aren't we, in Matthew 28, uh, verse 18, to go into all the world, to make disciples of the nations and to baptise people in the name of the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit. That's never changed. That's never changed. The frameworks change. The institutional setup changes. Culture changes. But the fundamental story of the book of Acts continues and it will continue until Jesus returns a second time. Another area of controversy is whether or not speaking in tongues is the initial evidence of being baptised in the Holy Spirit. And actually Pentecostal churches, Pentecostal movements have differing views on this. The Australian Christian Churches, which is Assemblies of God in Australia, they're pretty adamant that speaking in tongues is the initial evidence of baptism in the Holy Spirit. The other main Pentecostal movements in Australia, um, C3, um, INC, which used to be called Christian Outreach Centre Australia, they say it is evidence of, not the initial evidence. So there's different schools of thought on this. Um, I'm not here to tell you what to believe. You read the Bible, you pray, you experience the empowerment of the Holy Spirit in your life. There are many other elements, of course, that come with baptism in the Holy Spirit. There's wisdom that comes with baptism in the Holy Spirit. There's boldness that comes with baptism in the Holy Spirit. There's a courage that you'll never have unless you've had the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It's one of the things I quite like about Australian Christian churches is they're not going to throw you out if you don't agree with everything that's in their doctrinal statement, um, they would have a bit of trouble credentialing me if I turned up. I've had some discussions with them about these, these kinds of issues and um, they're very open about it. That's one of the things I love about Australian Christian churches. But you need to understand that not everybody has the same perspective on Pentecost as we do. And you know what? We love all those people and we don't wag our finger at them and tell them they're wrong. We believe based on the word of God and based on our own experience that what we read here in the book of Acts is for today. And it was not some dispensation for just a short period of human history. I've mentioned already, and this is my fifth point, that the purpose of Pentecost is power. 
The book of Acts records how the Holy Spirit empowered and guided the, whole, the, the early church. I mean, can you imagine Peter? Peter, this was the guy who didn't have the guts to stick up for Jesus. But he was the guy who protested when Jesus said, you're going to deny me, Peter. No, Lord, I'd never do that. Oh, I love you too much. And as soon as the pressure came on, what did he do? He, he said, I don't know that joker. Nah, never met him before. Of course I haven't been knocking around with him for the last three years. He denied him three times. This, this was a guy totally deflated, totally deflated. One, by the death of Jesus, but two, by the realisation that he had actually turned and run at a critical moment. And then suddenly, suddenly, this guy Peter stands up in front of the crowd and says, hang on a minute, hang on a minute. I want to tell you about the truth that you're witnessing with your very own eyes. And of course, there are other instances where Peter was an exceedingly powerful preacher recorded in the book of Acts. One of the most influential men in the end, other than Paul and Jesus, one of the most influential men on Christianity and on human history. The Holy Spirit got a hold of him and empowered him to be the man he became and left behind the man he was. Yes, today's church looks different. There was nothing like this back at the time of that first Christian Pentecost. It's very different. We've splintered into at least 38,000 denominations. And now in many countries of the world, there are lots and lots of people who have said, we don't want to have anything to do with the institutional church. They've set up house churches. The house church movement is growing very rapidly now, particularly in North America. And I know people who are involved in house churches in Australia. So that the whole system looks so very different today. But the truth remains. The church, no matter what it looks like, the church is the people, and we're organised through what you might call the institutional church, and God loves organisation, God loves order, and that's what the church, the, the um, institutional church has to offer the body of Christ, order, uh, organisation, and also a degree of safety. But regardless of how the church look, looks, we still have access to the same empowerment and to the same guidance and wisdom as was available to the apostles, as was available to the 120, as was available to the 3,000, as was available to those who were added daily to their number, as recorded 